listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Send in your question or comment. To participate in the show, you can text or call 757-774-8482. Or to email the show, you can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. Indeed, welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast, the guitar tech podcast. My name is Eric Daw. I'm a longtime guitar builder and repairman, and my co-host today is drum roll, please. The lovely Lauren. Hello, Lauren. Greetings. I will read the listeners' submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. Mm-hmm. What's on your bench lately, Eric? I've been working on a lot of uh, pickup rewinds, rewinding pickups, and a lot of... It's funny how... You know, I've talked about this on the show before, but things come in batches. Like, I don't just get one pickup rewind. I get three of them in the mail from different people. I don't know why that is. But it's one of those laws of nature where I just... Things come in batches. So a lot of pickup rewinds... A lot of just normal setups, and th- I'm trying to work my way through my backlog because I'm way behind. Like a month, be- like I have a month long waiting list that I'm trying to work through. And if I could just get through some of these repairs, then I could focus more on building, which is really what I want to do lately. I want to do more building because I haven't. I've been focusing on other things, and I've been doing some. Uh, refinishes on some vintage guitar bodies and i gotta tell you i'm thinking about maybe not doing that anymore because it's so much work and like there's just no i could never charge enough to make it worth my while but i i don't know my hat is off to people who have made a a living and kind of carved a niche out of refinishing vintage guitars because it's not easy it's very difficult and the other thing that's been going on as always is i just am constantly like running to the post office and shipping out books and t-shirts and pickups and stickers and lots of books have you looked at the book i wrote lauren did i give you a copy i i do have a copy yeah the the wiring schematics book solid sound solid sound it was fun. I, Lauren and I met when I was, uh, well, I think before I started writing the book, but I remember talking to you about helping me choose the title. And Yeah, Solid last Sound year. or what, what were the two it was between? It was between Solid Sound or Secret Sound. Secret Sound. And I think we were both leaning towards Secret Sound. Yeah, we were, but I think Solid Sound, it, it works better for the book. It works I don't know. Sometimes I think, I wish I would have named it Secret Sound. (laughs) 
That was the working title. I think what tipped the scale was I posted a poll on Instagram and said, help me choose the title. And everybody said Solid Sound. Mm. Well, the title is fitting for the book, though. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it works. <laughs> I shouldn't have heartburn about it. It works just <laughs> fine. So, uh, but if you want, if you haven't got a copy of my book, go to solidsoundbook.com and get a copy all about wiring solid body guitars. The first thing I wanted to share here today was a uh, a new review that somebody submitted on the book. Do you want to read it? Sure. Solid sound review, book review. Uh, awesome addition to any repairman's bench. Really easy to understand information and a bunch of useful tips and tricks. All right. Excellent charts and diagrams provide immediate access to all the info you could want and some you didn't know you were missing. Mm. Eric Daw and Daniel P. really did a beautiful job. Well worth the cost of entry. Good job, guys. Hmm. From Jeff Metz. Oh, my buddy Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Daniel Paterselka helped me design the book, and he did the layout and the design, and he really did a good job. It looks good, doesn't it? Oh, the, it looks beautiful. The yellow and the... It's well done. Yeah, he did a good job. I couldn't have done it without him. If I didn't have Dan to help me do that, it would have looked like a high school book report. I mean, the information would have been the same, but it wouldn't have looked cool. And that was half the challenge, was I wanted it to look cool. It looks cool. There's a very vintage, retro look to the book. Yeah. Lots of style and great information. Yeah. That's what I wanted, you know. He did a good job. We have a call to take. Somebody left a message. So, uh, let's... Let's take the call. See see what we have here. Hi, Eric. This is Bob in Boulder County, Colorado. I just left you a voicemail last week about a neck reset on an ES-style Gibson. Hey, I just listened to, uh, I think it's episode six, about vintage guitars. And I wanted to comment on your comments on vintage guitars. I have a feeling that a lot of the allure of a vintage guitar is the fact that it's been played a long time. There's very, very many playing hours on it. And I think that there's something about playing the instrument many, many, many hours that makes it more magical somehow. I think if you put a 58 Telecaster in a hermetically sealed chamber that after it came out of the factory and took it out, you know, 60, 70 years later, it would be a brand new guitar and it wouldn't be the same. Mm -hmm. The other thing about vintage guitars is that I worked in a, a, a music store in the late 60s, early 70s. And I can tell you that the workmanship was not great in the late 60s. They were turning out so many guitars after the British invasion and then Beatlemania and everybody wanted to be in a band. They were turning out so many guitars so quickly that I think the quality control was not great. Hmm. Thank you very much. I love the podcast. Take care. Right on. Thank you. Did you catch his name? Uh, I believe it was Bob. I think you're right. I think it was Bob. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Bob, you got a point uh, on several uh 
points of your call there. Yeah, the the quality control did drop off after the Beat after like the British invasion after the Beatles, and a lot of the top guitar companies like Fender and Gibson changed hands, and they went into overtime mass production. And I think everybody kind of agrees that you know past about the mid '60s, the quality control dropped off for many. Uh, of the top American manufacturers. He mentioned uh, something I said in episode six. You got to understand, episode six, we're talking like, that was nine, ten years ago. So I don't know what I said. (laughs) I have no idea. But uh, just judging from your call, from your comment, I guess I didn't say what you said, which was that a lot of the allure of a vintage guitar is that it's been like worn in with countless hours of playing. You know, and that makes sense. Lauren plays violin, and I, you know, there is something about, like, a well-worn instrument. They sound much better. That's your your heart and your soul. Yeah. Being played into it. and And probably just, I mean, especially for violins and acoustic instruments, like acoustic guitars, I think the hours and hours of playing, the vibrations open up the wood. I think so, too. Over time and make it sound different. Plus, it's just got the mojo of, you know, the nicks and dings of being handled and played and loved and the wear, you know. Yeah, there's absolutely... You've got a great point. There's something about the hours and hours of wear. But I will say... Vintage guitars were, I, in my opinion, were built to a higher standard out of better quality components if we're talking about the early half of the 20th century, you know, up until, like you talked about, Bob, up until they really took off with mass production. Fender guitars from the golden age, 50s Fenders, were more, way more handmade than they are today, hands-on. The woods that were available have been over-farmed now to where the quality... I mean, it's hard to get lightweight swamp ash. It's hard to get... You can't use um, Brazilian rosewood anymore, you know? So I think a lot of the materials that those guitars were made out of just aren't available anymore, and if they are, they're not available to, to the standard that they were. I mean, even if you like... Like, for example, this house... I'm sitting in a house that was made in 1957 and I go here in my storage room and I look up in the rafters and the two by fours that this house is made out of, the two by fours are like, you could not buy lumber like that now. Nope. You look at the grain, you look at um, the density of the wood. uh, It's just the lumber and and the quality of wood that was available 70 years ago um, just isn't around anymore. So I think that's a big part of it. And maybe I talked about that in episode six. I have no idea. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe I should go back and listen to, I don't listen to the podcast by the way. So I have no idea what I said back then. Cause for me, that was 10 years ago and I don't know what I said, but what else did Bob say that we can comment on? I think we covered it. Thanks for the call, Bob. Thank you. 
Uh, let's see. Shall we do a? Uh, let's let's uh, let's read a few uh, questions, shall we? All right. Lauren's gonna read some questions here. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Hey, Eric. This is Cole from the northwest corner of Connecticut. Thank you so much for the podcast. It is such a wealth of knowledge and inspiration. I have been practicing building my first S and T style necks and fretboards recently. I have a few questions I haven't been able to get a thoughtful opinion on. Uh, question number one, should fret slots have a radius like the top of the fretboard? Are they cut flat to the depth of the tang on the outsides, but deeper in the center? Mm. Or should I take these one at a time? Uh, it depends on, so there's two ways to cut fret slots. Um, one is with a, 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 a saw, a handheld saw by hand with a guide on it. So it's like a, it's just a handheld little fret saw and it has a, a stop mounted onto the side with thumb screws that you can adjust the depth of the saw. So as you cut the fret slot, the saw follows the contour of the fingerboard so you naturally get a radius fret slot. And that's fine as long as it's deep enough all the way through because the fret is going to be radiused as well. So a radiused fret slot is just fine for, uh, uh, you know, when you cut it by hand and you install the fret. The other way to cut fret slots is with a um, table saw, like a, you know, a, a blade that's going to cut the uh, the slot. It does not do a radius fret slot. So it doesn't really matter. It's going to depend on how you cut them. And there's really no right or wrong way. I cut them by hand when I have to. Uh, I use a, a, a fretting or a slot saw that has a depth gauge. And so I end up with a radius slot. So should fret slots have a radius? Depends on how you cut them. And there's no right or wrong answer there. That kind of goes into question number two. Does a radius or flat nut slot make a difference? Oh. Well, I mean, does it make a difference in what? You know, what it really, um, again, it depends on how you cut it. And it also depends on, like, I've seen a lot of people, uh, you know, they'll buy a neck from Warmoth or Musicraft or All Parts or whatever, and then they'll buy a nut blank, and they'll have a mismatched thing where, like, they bought a neck from Warmoth, which has a flat slot for the nut, and then they buy a radius nut and they figure well that's okay we'll just use it anyway they stick it in there and so the nut is only making contact on the outer edges and underneath the middle of the nut there's a gap and that's bad you don't want a gap under the nut because you want a solid connection the the key to a really good sounding guitar in my experience is everything is this really solid connection when the string vibrates you want everything to be really solid. Anything that can uh, dissipate 
string vibration is going to give you less volume, less sustain, less tone. Um, and if you've got a gap underneath a saddle or a nut, then that eats up string vibration and you don't want that. So does it matter? Not really. What's important is if you've got a radius nut slot, you use a radius nut blank and make sure it matches. If you've got a flat nut slot, make sure you use a flat nut blank and make sure it matches, make sure it's seated all the way through. I also um, tend to glue in my, uh, when I make a nut, I glue it in. A lot of luthiers don't. For some reason, they feel like it's not necessary. Um, I think it's absolutely necessary, and I use just a couple little drops of cyanoacrylate glue. Do you know what cyanoacrylate glue is, Lauren? No. It's a fancy, sometimes they call it CA glue. It's a fancy name for super glue. What's it made out of? Just regular old super glue. (laughs) And say it again. Cyanoacrylate. Cyanoacrylate. Yeah, that's what they call it. Or CA glue. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to sound professional, like when I'm talking to a customer, I don't want to tell him I'm going to use super glue. Oh, yeah, I'll glue that in with super glue. I say, oh, I'll glue that in with cyanoacrylate. Yes. And then they're impressed. (laughs) Oh, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. (laughs) All right. Curved truss rods confuse me, so I hope this makes sense. Looking at one piece of maple neck builds, they all have a curved truss rod channel. Is this always the case with one neck, one piece necks? Can necks with glued on fingerboards also have a curved truss rod? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Well, most, yeah. So the, like a single action truss rod will, will curve as you tighten it and they have a natural bit of curve anyway. That's how they work. So, um, yeah, the curved nuts, the curved truss rod channel is great. Uh, yeah, and it whether it's whether it's got a whether it's got a rosewood fingerboard or whether it's a solid maple neck, yeah, curved is good. Awesome. Which truss rods do you prefer in your pinup guitars? Hmm. And he says, "Thank you again." That's from Cole. <laughs> uh, I on the guitars that I make, I use a single action vintage style heel adjustment truss rod just like fender would have used in the golden era like 50s and 60s just single action heel adjust that's what i use thank you cole thanks cole that's from the northwest corner of connecticut all right let's read one more and then we'll take a little break here greetings I have an early 70s Les Paul custom that has been stripped to raw wood, refretted, and headstock repaired. I'd like to have it refinished, but want to get it playing its best first. Mm-hmm. I notice that there's a hump in the heel, and the truss rod is all the way tight with a little daylight still in the middle. To flatten the neck, it'd need to be an eighth to quarter turn tighter. Mm-hmm. I think I can level the frets to fix playability, but I'd still have no adjustment in the truss rod. I have heard that steaming the neck flat with the truss rod in neutral would be a viable repair, but most local luthiers aren't willing to try that. I wanted to get your opinions on guitars that have tight truss rods and need to be tightened more, and what to do about them. 
That's Nick from Detroit. Cool. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Thanks for the question. Uh, he said, what did he say? There's Okay, the truss rod is all the way tight with a little daylight still in the middle. I was fixated on, the, on that for a minute because I couldn't figure out what he meant. But I think what he means, so the truss rod's all the way tight, but there's still just a slight bit of up bow in the neck. So there's like a little bit of daylight. <laughs> if you put a straight edge across it, there'd be a little bit of daylight in the middle. I yeah. get it. I get it. So you need you need a little more uh, to flatten the neck and a little bit more out of the truss rod. Um, you know, the first thing I would try, Nick, on this guitar, uh, the first thing I would try is I would take the strings off, I would loosen the truss rod, and then I would clamp the neck with a back bow in it. So get a board or a... Or a long, you know, I have these big rectangular metal hollow tubes that I get from Stuart McDonald that you can, you put self-adhesive sandpaper on to uh, to do fret sanding. But something like that where you can clamp the neck to it, you, what you can also do, a lot of guys do this, flip the guitar over and clamp it to a table. But what you want to do is you want to um, clamp the neck into a back bow and then tighten the truss rod up to that. A lot of times a truss rod needs a little bit of help getting a little bit of extra. So if you clamp it to where you want it to be and then tighten the truss rod nut up to that, oftentimes that will work. What you can do too is um, when before you do this, Loosen the truss rod nut. This is a Gibson, right? Did he say that? Yeah. Uh, 70s, 70s Gibson Les Paul Custom. Mm -hmm. Take the tr that little acorn nut at the end of the truss rod, take it off, and get a washer to put on the, th on the truss rod itself before you put the, the acorn nut back on. While you've got the truss rod nut off, you can put a little bit of oil on the threads just to keep things working smoothly. Just some light oil, machine oil. And then with the neck clamped with an overbow, you know, with a back bow, tighten the truss rod nut up to that. And then string it up, see where the string tension wants to pull the neck. And with any luck... You might actually have to loosen the truss rod nut just a little bit to get it to where you want it to be. This is how I do, like any Rickenbacker that I work on, any vintage especially Rickenbacker that I work on, if I need to tighten the truss rod up, this is how I do it. Because with those and with a lot of guitars, if the truss rod is super tight, you can just damage things by trying to make the truss rod do all the work. So clamp the neck where you want it to be and then tighten the truss rod up to that. He also says, I've heard that steaming the neck flat with the truss rod in neutral would be a viable repair. That's a little bit um, incorrect. I, you know, steaming the neck isn't what I would call it. I use a neck heating iron. It's a neck press. Uh, you can get them from Rick at Players Gear Music, who's an advertiser on the show. But it's just a big steel 
rectangular bar with a heating element inside it and a thermostat. You can adjust the heat. It gets super hot. You can clamp the neck to where you want it to be. You know, if it's got a weird hump in the neck, you can put a shim where that hump is and then clamp around it. Or in your case, where there's just not an, there's not enough, there's, there's too much forward bow in the neck, what you would do is put a shim down by the first fret and then a shim way up at the last fret and then clamp the middle of the neck and pull a bow into it, pull a back bow into it, heat it up. And that heat helps the neck stay uh, where you put it. And it absolutely works. I've been doing it for a long time. And it is a viable repair. It's fallen out of favor. For some reason, a lot of luthiers won't mess with it, and they don't believe in it. They, like, think it's voodoo. They think it's, like, guitar repair voodoo, and they're like, oh, we don't do that. That's not... People don't do that anymore. They absolutely do still do it, and it does work. It's just guys are afraid to do it, or they, for some reason, they think it doesn't work. It does work. I've done it a thousand times. But the first thing I would try is just clamping it with the truss rod loose, clamping it to where you want it, and then tighten the truss rod up to that. Thank you, Nick from Detroit. Thanks, Nick. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with more. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, guys. I'm Cody with Apex Coffee Roasters. I wanted to give a few pointers on how to brew the best possible coffee at home. First thing you're going to need to make great coffee at home is great coffee. So whether you have Apex or one of the other many delicious roasters out there, having great coffee is definitely step number one. Step two is having a a good consistent grind um, through that coffee where each particle is relatively the same size. It's going to be really important to your overall extraction. Once the coffee is ground, Uh, It starts to lose its aromatics and its quality fairly quickly. So grinding immediately before brewing is the most ideal situation. Tip number three is 99-ish percent of your coffee, what you're going to be consuming is made up of the water that you brewed with. So having high quality brew water is definitely essential to the overall taste of that coffee. If you have water filtration, that is gonna be significantly better than just using straight tap water. If you follow the first few guidelines of using high quality coffee, making sure your grind is correct, using good brewing water, those are all going to ensure that just a basic coffee maker um, is actually going to give you a really good tasting cup. Okay guys, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, order coffee from apexcoffeeroasters.com and we'll see you soon. Thanks. That's good coffee. If you order Apex Coffee online, make sure to use our promo code PINUP. That's P-I-N-U-P. That way they know that the Fret Files podcast sent you and you get 10% off. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music, you can order a neck straightening iron, some people call it a neck press or a neck heater, 
it is an invaluable tool in my shop. I use it all the time. I'd be lost without one of these. I, I love having a neck straightening iron, and Rick is making a really, really stout industrial. It, I, I think it... I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've I've used a lot. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one from PlayersGearMusic.com. They're $7.49. I know that seems like a lot. It's it's a tool. I tell you what, it's going to pay for itself a hundred times over. If you go to PlayersGearMusic.com. Scroll down on the main page. Scroll, scroll, scroll down to where it says Fan of the Fret Files Podcast. You click that. That adds one to your cart. And it's 50 bucks off. So instead of $7.49, it's $6.99. $6.99, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron. Playersgearmusic.com has them. And you need one. I'm telling you. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out. And don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. As you know from listening to the show, I repair and restore guitars. If you go over to ericdaw.com and see information about guitar repair and guitar restoration, you can contact me there. If you've got some guitar restoration or pickup rewinding, anything that you need done, if you want to see the custom guitars that I build, you can go over to pinupcustomguitars.com. There's a whole lot of guitars on there that have been sold, but I also post new arrivals there all the time. They go quick, so check often. The best way to get into the loop is to submit your email address on the uh, on the homepage of that website, and that'll add you to my email list, and you'll get a heads up when there's new guitars available. That's pinupcustomguitars.com and ericdaw.com. Greetings, Fret Files Podcast. Greetings. <laughs> saddle shims. Seems like it's never been discussed on the podcast. What, saddle shims? Saddle shims. Okay. Are you for or against them? And while we're at it, how do you feel about putting a shim under the nut? Hmm. Thanks for the show, <laughs> Bill. Oh, thanks, Bill. Uh, saddle shims. Well, that's a popular thing to do when the when a saddle needs to be raised. To raise the action on an acoustic guitar, it's popular to put a, th- a thin shim. Boy, that's hard to say. A thin shim. Thin shim. Thin shim. Like a slim jim. <laughs> Snap into a thin shim. Uh, to put a thin shim under the saddle to raise it up. I don't know. It's not the coolest thing to do, but it's understandable. It depends on the guitar. You know, it's 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 acceptable to do. It's common practice. If it's a really high-end guitar and the saddle needs to come up a lot, it's probably better just to make a new saddle for it. But here's the cool thing. You save the old saddle and put it in the case because guitars fluctuate, right? And so you might need to, with humidity changes and temperature fluctuations, you might need to slip the old saddle back in there to get lower action. So... You know, it's not a bad idea to have a couple different saddles that are interchangeable for a nice guitar where, well, this is on a guitar where the saddle comes in and out. A lot of vintage guitars, the saddles are glued in with hot hide glue, so shimming those up isn't an option. But, um, yeah, saddle shims aren't the end of the world. I've certainly done it, uh, you know, a lot. Um... 
here's a really cool way to do it. If you want to know the super hip, good, like Eric approved way to, to shim up a saddle, what I like to do is I will actually super glue the shim to the bottom of the saddle to make a real solid connection. And I'll use like hardwood, like a, like a veneer of maple or a veneer of, uh, rosewood or ebony or something, you know, Mm -hmm. I've got little veneer shim stock, a little drawer full of all kinds of wood (laughs) scraps. But if you want to make a real nice saddle shim, you can glue uh, hardwood to the bottom of the saddle and then you can sand it down a little bit to make it the right height if it's too thick but that's a cool way to do it because then you don't have a you don't have two loose parts you know the, the saddle and the shim are one continuous thing if you super glue the shim to the bottom of the saddle that's a cool way to do it what else did he say oh how do you feel about putting a shim under the nut that is uh, nah, I'm not super excited about that. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, on a guitar, like say, you know, a guitar needs a new nut and they'll need a new nut for a lot of reasons. If you're refretting, it needs a new nut usually. If the slots have just become worn out and too deep or if the nut is cracked, then you got to replace the nut. Um, The only time... I will shim a nut, really, is if, well, A, if the customer really wants it because they don't want to pay for a new nut if they request it, but I don't really give it as an option. But if the customer comes up with it of their own accord, it's their own idea, and that's what they want done, sure, I'll do that. But just like shimming a saddle up, the hip way to do it is to glue on a veneer underneath it so it's not just like you don't want to use paper right a lot of guys do that i i found a lot of business cards under nut under nuts and you don't want that so uh what was i saying i have no idea (laughs) um the only time that i'll really consider shimming up a nut is if it's a vintage guitar that has the original nut and the original nut is super cool like an old martin sometimes they have ivory nuts Hmm. and you can't get ivory nut anymore because you can't get ivory anymore because there's a you know for good reason there's a ban on ivory right true so if it's a super cool old ivory nut or something that we want to keep with the guitar yeah, I'll consider shimming that up. If it's a vintage guitar where the nut is just a really cool part of the guitar, I'll consider shimming it up. But outside of that, I just replace the nut rather than shim it. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Next question. Hello, Eric. I have an 80s USA Fender Stratocaster that has the two-point tremolo, and I want to change it to a vintage style one with the six mounting screws. Okay. Is this an easy conversion to do? Is it even advisable? I just like the look of the vintage one better. Thanks. And that's from Gary in North Dakota. Mm, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Is it advisable? Yeah. I mean, is it? can it be done? Yes. It can be done. And I'm with you. I like the look of the vintage ones better. 
Here's the deal, though. You've got an 80s Fender Strat. You didn't say what kind of condition it's in or anything like that or what exactly it is, but that's a guitar that, you know, that's 40 years old. That's that's a vintage guitar now. Believe it or not, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, if you were my customer just talking with me over the guitar in the shop, I would probably try to talk you out of it. Um, I don't like drilling a bunch of extra holes in a guitar that, you know, kind of it has the potential for some value, right? Because uh, there's no going back. You can't drill holes and then and then take away that decision, you know? The deed is done once you drill a bunch of holes. So if you were to change that to a, to the six-screw vintage style rather than the the uh, two-point, what did he call it? Yeah, the two-point tremolo that they had in the 80s, and they still have. Um, I would leave it. That's, that's Let's make the story short. I'd leave it. Bill, was it Bill? No, it was Gary. Gary. Gary, I would leave it alone, man. I mean, you do what you want, and it can be done, but I kind of hate to see parts being changed out on a cool old guitar. So that's my two cents. I'd leave it. Hello, Eric. Regarding the ES-335 neck reset discussed in the most recent episode, mm -hmm. I just came across this video from this guy in Nashville, Harpeth Guitars. Oh. I don't know him, but maybe the listener wants to contact him? Cheers, Michael in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Michael. I watched the video he sent me. It's very cool. This guy in Nashville, Harpeth Guitars, he did a neck reset on an Epiphone Casino. It was a like a 90s Japanese-made Epiphone Casino, but same uh, neck joint that a 335 would have had. And his technique was cool. He, he had to drill like... I don't remember. He had to remove all the frets from, like, the body joint up and drilled six holes into the fret slots and put heat sticks in there and heated it up. It was pretty adventurous. I don't know. I'm scared of doing, like, modern Asian neck resets because you don't, you never know if they use, used epoxy or, that like, tight bond aliphatic resin glue i don't know it's it's tricky to do those and like i said in the last episode it's not something i want to do but this guy in nashville looks like he had a cool video about doing them harpeth guitars maybe i should have him on the show have a, i could yeah have, do an interview with that fella it's a yeah. cool name harpeth yeah. guitars I didn't even look. I don't know if that's his last name. I should look, huh? <laughs> I'm bad at my own podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Greetings, Fret Files Podcast. Greetings. I was wondering if you might be obliged to delve into what I've always considered a bit of a guitar history mystery. Why did Gibson purchase Epiphone and then make Epiphone versions of Gibson guitars in the same factory? Mm. It doesn't make sense to me. Why wouldn't they just make Epiphone models that were different or budget models? For example, the Epiphone Casino and the Gibson 330 are almost identical. Same shape, same build, same woods, same factory, same workers. <laughs> yeah. Just slightly different headstocks and different names. I don't get it. Why would they do this? 
Have you ever put any thought into this? Was Epiphone considered the second rate to Gibson back in these days like it is now? What are your thoughts? Good questions, Randy, from Arizona. Thank you, Randy. Randy, this gives me an opportunity to pull up a sound clip that I haven't used for a long time. Woo! Yeah, let's try it. The Guitar History Corner. The Guitar History Corner. We haven't done a Guitar History Corner for a long time. But this, Randy, this gives me an excuse to do (laughs) a Guitar History Corner segment. You know, it's it's easy to view Epiphone as inferior to Gibson, right? As I mean, that's the case today. Epiphone is Gibson's budget brand. But things were really different in the 60s. So you have to think about the history of wh- how this all happened. The Epiphone company was Gibson's main competitor, or one of them. Uh, they made high-quality instruments through the first half of the 1900s. Epiphone was its own entity, its own company. And then during like wartime, you know, during World War II, a lot of the guitar companies in the States and I'm sure around the world uh, had a difficult time financially. You know, materials like steel were harder to get. And just, you know, the labor force changed and economics changed. So it really changed the whole landscape for American manufacturers. Um, and then Epiphone, the, the guy running it, Epi, Epi Strathopoulos, <laughs> uh, he passed away in the wartime, it's sometime in the forties. And I guess Epiphone just kind of financially languished, uh, until Gibson was, you know, they decided to fold, sell the name and Gibson bought it up in 1957. So, uh, Gibson acquired the Epiphone name and trademark and all of their equipment. And they closed that Epiphone factory down and they moved all the production to where they made Gibson guitars in Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and I looked this up in the blue book of acoustic guitars. It says it was decided that Epiphone would be reestablished as a first rate guitar manufacturer so that Gibson's parent company, CMI, could offer a product comparable in every way to Gibson. So Gibson was, in effect, competing with itself. Isn't that weird? So, Randy, you're dead on. It was actually, you know, planned this way. CMI, Gibson's parent company, wanted kind of their own Gibson. They, Even though they owned Gibson, they wanted to offer Epiphone guitars that were comparable to Gibson. So it's very strange. I, I don't know. I mean, it is a strange business decision. I'm sure it made sense to them, and maybe we don't have all the information, but that's what they decided to do. Uh, it was decided that Epiphone would be reestablished as a first-rate guitar manufacturer so that Gibson's parent company, CMI, could offer a product comparable in every way to Gibson. Selling virtually identical models of guitars. All of them were built at the Gibson plant in Kalamazoo to the same high standards, and in many cases by the same designers and craftsmen, but with different labels, different model designations, and different model numbers. But this situation really only lasted until 1969, when most Epiphone production was shifted abroad. So, we're talking about late 50s and through the 60s, um, 
Epiphone guitars produced during this period. They look and perform almost exactly identical to their Gibson counterparts because they are. So therefore, they're highly prized by players and collectors alike. Looked at it through the prism of now, Epiphone is Gibson's budget model. So it's easy to look at vintage Gibsons and vintage Epiphones and assume that Epiphones are second rate to Gibson. But in the 60s, it wasn't the case. Epiphones were very high quality, the same as Gibson. And uh, just different names and different designations. Wow. How about that? Excellent history lesson. Yes, thank you. The Guitar History Corner. (laughs) Well, that does it for this episode of the Fret Files podcast. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for having me, Eric. For joining us. It was fun. And uh, thank you for participating. If you want to participate in the show, you can go to my website, ericdaw.com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. You can call or text that number anytime, day or night. It's just a uh, answering machine. Nobody's going to answer it. You can just leave your message there and we'll use it as part of the show. Thanks, y'all. We'll talk to you next time. See you soon.